Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Really excited for you to meet uh, Professor Dr. Scott Yenner from Boise State, uh, obviously in Boise, Idaho. He has quite a story to tell. He, he pushed back against cancel culture. And well, I'll let you hear the end of the story in just a moment. Scott, we are so glad you're, you're on here. Thanks for being on with us. Thank you for having me on. And uh, Scott, you and I just met. We met when we were speaking at a conference a few days ago in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And what you shared was powerful there, as you shared a great deal on, on the nature of defending marriage. And uh, I'm gonna ha- I won't have you go into that. We're going to stay focused on the battle that you had in terms of coming against the cancel culture in your university. So Scott, let's just start right off by take one minute to give a little bit of biographical sketch to who you are, where you are, uh, where you were, where you grew up, and your schooling, and your area of uh, that you lecture in. And then we're going to jump right in the story of what in the world happened at Boise State. Yeah, I'm a Wisconsin boy. I was born and raised a Lutheran Synod, a Missouri Synod Lutheran uh, from Wisconsin. I married my wife out of college and went to get my PhD at Loyola University. We began having children while I was a grad student. And um, uh, you know, midway through our having of kids, we landed this job out here in Boise in 2000 and moved and uh, had three more once we moved. So we have five kids. And uh, I study political philosophy. I've written a couple of books on the family. One is called Family Politics, published in 2009, I think. And uh, the most recent is called The Recovery of Family Life, published in 2020. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Tell me, Dr. Ginner, what happened at Boise State when they uh, tried to drive you from the faculty, in effect, or silence you? Yeah, I gave a particular speech uh, criticizing feminism in at the end of August, uh, at the end of October 2020, and uh, you know it became a kind of storm, social media storm. And after the storm was uh, rising, the university defended my right to free speech, but they also solicited. Uh, students or past students to tell their stories about how I might have discriminated against them and harassed them over the course of time. And Shazam, sure enough, they got a couple of uh, people who took the bait and uh, made complaints against me for harassment and discrimination. And, uh, and that meant that there was a Title IX investigation. A Title IX investigation is not any kind of traditional legal uh, investigation, but rather um, one where evidence doesn't weigh so heavily, uh, the standards for proof are, uh, are much lower, uh, you can't cross-examine witnesses. Um, and uh, so over the course of the spring semester of this year, 2021, uh, in addition to my teaching duties, I had a Title IX investigation going on. And so that extended for how long? It, uh, they announced the beginning of the Title IX investigation in December, and uh, the last report was given in May, I think, or maybe at the end of April. You know, once they made charges against me, um, the, uh, you know, I, I reached out to friends and let them know what was happening, and everyone had kind of agreed that uh, I would need to get uh, a good attorney. And I did get a good attorney. She is the attorney who's representing Joshua Katz at Princeton right now, and who represented Ilya Shapiro at Georgetown uh, most recently, and uh, she was my attorney, and, uh, and I asked several friends if they would help support me uh, and set up a legal defense fund, 
which they did. I had ample money without asking very many people. And uh, so having excellent legal representation was really essential going into any kind of trial like this. The other thing that was important is that I've gone through a kind of other cancellation episode here at Boise State about five years ago. I made some critical comments about transgenderism and how it would uh, abridge parental rights. And there was a kind of smaller storm, the boyhood of cancellation, I call it, uh, uh, five years ago. And since then, I have made a uh, practice of always recording all of my lectures, uh, keeping double copies of all emails that I send to students so that I would be able to refer to them, recording most conversations when I need to, and uh, so that I could never be misrepresented because it seemed to me that that was one of the ways in which these Title IX investigations would usually snare professors is that uh, there would be an unrecorded moment. Uh, the student would allege something had happened, the professor would deny it, or at least couldn't recall. And that actually is enough to convict you under a Title IX investigation. Uh, you can't cross-examine a witness. So if somebody claims something, you can't come back and ask them questions on from your side? No, you're, uh, I, I would say that the witnesses are always assumed to tell the truth and to have pure motives. So that the students who heard my speech or heard about my speech and then made claims of discrimination, their claims are believed unless I can positively disprove them. And, uh, and that's kind of the situation you're in, uh, in, one of these, uh, in one of these hearings. It's not a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. It's a preponderance of the evidence standard. And the supposed victim groups are usually thought to have pure motives uh, would never lie and would never have political biases, whereas the faculty, especially I think if they're conservatives, uh, are always assumed to have bad motives. And uh, a discriminatory and harassing heart lurks within my chest and uh, no doubt probably comes out uh, in my teaching and in my dealings with students. At least that's the assumption that they entertain. Were they just simply trying to get you to fire, fired or, or were they wanting you to resign um, I think, you know, maybe both. I mean, certainly my job was on the line once the Title IX hearing comes up, uh, which makes it a very high stakes hearing. Um, it also happens uh, not infrequently that people who are subject to this kind of um, harassment from the university, as it might be called, uh, do resign because life on the university becomes somewhat unlivable uh, if the guns of the administration are pointed at you. Uh, what, what was the specificity of the accusation? What had you done that was so bad? Well, I, I can kind of talk about this. Uh, one, of the, one of the wrinkles in these Title IX hearings is that the, you're not really allowed to talk about any specific charge that could be traced back to a student. If you talk about a specific charge that could be traced back to a particular student, you have committed an additional crime called the crime of retaliation. So I can only make kind of a general account of what happened in the Title IX hearings, unless I want to make myself subject to another Title IX investigation. Um, generally, uh, the claims were that I grade female students worse than male students. They get lower grades. And that I engage with female students less than I engage uh, with male students. Things like I don't call on them as much, or um, I don't give them uh, specific comments uh, on their uh, assignments. 
So uh, those were the kind of the general claims. There was also claims that I, you know, said uh, very objectionable things in class and uh, and endorsed those kinds of things in class. That is where, in, in all of these cases, having kept really good records and uh, of you know, like who gets called on and what kind of grades everyone got on every assignment over the course of years. And uh, having recordings of the class allowed me to positively rebut the charges. But uh, you know, the charges do range from very general, you grade them differently, to very specific, you said this, and that's harassment. Man, what a huge amount of time that must have taken from you, because you've got to go back through recordings of every class for years and see how many males and how many females you called on in the class. Yeah, it was, uh, it was something. My goodness, did this, uh, well, let, let, let me go ahead to the, to the end of it, I guess, and find how did it resolve itself? Now, before we do that, what was so objectionable about what you said? What, what did they dislike that you said that was so terrible? Well, and in my speech, I kind of made an overarching argument that if you're gonna have a great country, you need great families. And if you're gonna have great families, you need strong men and women who are willing to be mothers. And there's a lot of things that America does to undermine the, the raising of strong men and encouragement for young women to become mothers. And I talked about some of those things and some of them related to what the university does. We spend a lot of time stigmatizing, I said, uh, male-dominated professions and male-dominated measures uh, like engineering and, uh, and you know, stigmatize those majors for being male-dominated. And instead, I, I said we should probably celebrate their achievements instead of uh, simply worrying about stigmatizing them in the name of equity. Um, I also made some... Uh, you know, I think kind of snappy comments about the problems of feminism and how it affects uh, female psychology and happiness. Um, and so th those are the things that really drew the ire. You know, I think my critics don't want great families. And I think my critics really aren't interested in having a strong nation. Um, but they criticize the policies that would be necessary to achieve those things that they don't really want. Are you... Are you marked now on your campus? In other words, do you have tenure, for example? Uh, are you marked and ostracized in any way, socially and otherwise? Well, I mean, uh, I'm a tenured full professor. Um, I was tenured pretty, you know, almost at the first moment I could be and uh, got full professor almost at the first moment I could be. I'm very well published. I have great teaching evaluations. I did a lot of service to the university. So, um, so my position, at least uh, until the next Title IX thing happens, is secure, I think. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if I want to say that I'm ostracized. I don't have tons of allies or friends on campus. Um, I'm kind of okay with that uh, in some ways because, you know, I stand for what I stand for and uh, I follow the truth where it leads, in my view. And, uh, you know, if other people think that that's bad, well, in my view, that's their problem. And I ostracize them. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is they'll say you're on the wrong side of history. No, you're on the right side of eternity. Well, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting to me that, that these kind of people who attack you are not even going to make footnotes in the history text in the future. 
and there'll be chapters written about people like you. That's what's ahead. But you resolved an issue. You were going to, you were, you chose to be right, stand on truth. And if that means you're not remembered till after your death, then so be it. Because uh, you're going to stand on principle. I, I just so praise God for people like you. Just curious, were there people like Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Were there people who came to you and said, hey, uh, we're, we're, we're with you. We're, we stand with you uh, secretly. Or, or did that occur at all? No, that, that happened. Uh, both students and faculty members, uh, you know, sent me notes, contacted me in other ways. Uh, there were several, uh, especially students, who wanted to kind of jump on grenades for me and, uh, you know, make public statements, video statements in support of me. I told them not to and uh, that, you know, I thought that I'd be able to win the battle of the Title IX battle without that. And I didn't want them to throw any kind of wrench into their lives. Uh, given the nature of the particular mob that we're up against. So, I mean, even, you know, very left-wing students uh, were interested in defending me and did defend me when interviewed, uh, you know, by the Title IX investigator. And, uh, and but, you know, there wasn't a ton of public uh, pushback. And uh, part of that is because I, I tried to dissuade people from doing that over much. That, that is an astounding paragraph you just walked us through. If we were to dissect that paragraph, it is fraught, is loaded with uh, rich context and meaning. Your students wanted to defend you and you prevented them from doing that. So it wouldn't, because in this, in this cancel culture mentality, it wouldn't destroy them in the process. Um, I, was worried this, about, I was definitely worried about that problem. And in, in tonight's broadcast, uh, Scott, what, what we're doing is we're covering somebody who was canceled and went through the long legal uh, legal issues. Of course, yours in a sense was legal and not in the courts of law, but still had a legality to it. Illegal. And, and then in your case, you really fought on alone. And then we're going to be interviewing someone who had kind of an army around them that fought with them. Uh, there, so there were no faculty as such that came out, no faculty groups that said, wait a minute, academic freedom. He has a right to say what he wants to say. If we don't agree with him, he has a right to say these things. No, nobody came out like that. No, everyone defended academic freedom, but here's the wrinkle in this. Um, uh, you, can, you can abridge academic freedom while defending it. The, you can say whatever you want, but if you say the things that no one wants to hear, you have committed harassment or discrimination. So there's a defense of free speech, but then there's an undermining of free speech by what you might call the civil rights regime on, under Title IX. And uh, I mean, I think that's a very unappreciated fact on the campuses. You can protect free speech all you want, but that doesn't mean free speech is protected because there's several ways through the back door, through the civil rights regime that we have built uh, to undermine free speech. And I don't wanna you know, uh, leave the impression that I was alone in this battle. Um, I have good friends uh, in the area, good friends in academia outside of uh, Idaho and, uh, and you know, bosses at, one of the places I'm a fellow, the Claremont Institute, they, you know, called, we talked daily, they offered great encouragement and support. Uh, they were great friends and aides throughout the whole thing. Uh, just in, a, in my particular location, um, you know, at my place of employment, I didn't have any public support. The, talk just about the emotions of it, if you would. You're, you're a high resolve kind of guy, I can tell. But it still stings. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not pleasant what you went through. 
Talk to me about how you handle this emotionally. It's not because you're snowflakey, you're obviously the opposite, but because we are made with the capacity to feel things and some things are pleasant. How did you go through that? How did you have your resolve? To, were you ever tempted to say, you know, it's not worth it. I'll go somewhere else and teach. I can get a job somewhere else. I don't have to put up with this stuff. Or, or what caused you to say, oh, no, I, this is on principle and I am going to fight this. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, there's kind of two parts of a cancellation, Jim. I mean, the first part is, we'll call it the cultural cancellation. That is when there's kind of a social stigma put on you. And then there's the attempt to get you fired, the legal cancellation. And of course, the cultural or social one precedes the legal cancellation. And, uh, you know, when, it, when the cultural thing hits you immediately, and you're getting hit from all directions, emails, phone calls, um, you know, people trying to hack your accounts, um, emails to my children, e uh, Facebook messages to my wife, uh, phone calls to places where I volunteer, all of these things happen. And, uh, and you're, you, you feel kind of dizzy uh, that it's all happening. And, you know, it's difficult to, uh, to have that not affect you. You know, you might lose some sleep uh, and uh, you, you look at all the things to worry about and wonder if you're protected. Strange cars might be parked outside your house and you're like, well, what's going on there? And, you know, you make sure you're well armed and all that stuff. And, uh, and that definitely happened in my case. Um, I understand the problem of honor. Um, and what that means is that I really only value the opinions of people who themselves are good and pious and strong. And I recognize that the people who are attacking me, like, don't fall into that category. But that doesn't mean they can't kill you and ruin your life. And uh, so those are definitely things that weigh on you and worry you and, you know, worry you on behalf of your family. And that's definitely something that uh, I think anyone who goes through these situations, um, you know, uh, experiences. Um, but, you know, after a few days, uh, in, in my particular case and in my family's case, we just had, you know, a confab about it. We talked about it and uh, told them what I was going to do and everyone was on the same page. And, uh, and I had very much unconditional support and love from those who were closest to me, uh, not only by blood, but by uh, fellowship. And uh, so, you know, uh, that's the key, you know, that, that's one of the great things that come out of uh, such an episode is that you know who your friends are, right? How did your wife handle all this? Yeah, you know, it's my, it, in a way it's harder for women, I think, um, because uh, they're- Oh, now you're, now you're in trouble again for saying that right there. <laughs> um, yeah, only for this reason um that the the way other women treat them is much more hostile and indirect so that people would duck out of hallways to avoid my wife and you know not knowing what to say uh or you know like agreeing with the critics uh they would you know act uh as if she were guilty and not me in this particular case i guess um, you know, and so I, th I think it is uh, harder in that, in the sense that women fight differently than men. And your children? Well, how, how old was your oldest? How old was your youngest through this? My oldest was 26. My youngest was 13 at the time. Yeah, I mean, everyone was, you know, they, some of them are at college. One of them goes to Boise State. Um, uh, you know, they, uh, in his particular case, people didn't know what his last name was in a, in a class, so they would be sitting there talking about me and he was sitting listening and uh so he had a lot of episodes like that they were kind of fun he'd call and tell me about him 
Uh, professors would talk about me in class, not knowing that my son was in the class, just very funny stuff like that. And, uh, but they took it with, uh, with more than a little good humor. And uh, I, you know, in part because I took it with pretty good humor. And, uh, and I, as I say, I think it draws us closer and makes us think about the important things. So when I hear the word bouncing around in my head is resiliency right now, for your, for your son to not get defensive and not blow his cover and to call you and the two of you laugh about this. And I see a smile on your face as you're describing it, like it's even kind of a, a joking, pleasant memory. And you use the term good humor twice. Uh, talk to me about that, the kind of resiliency you have. Well, I mean, I think uh, my kids have it too. I mean, I think it comes back to the problem of honor. You know, I do, I do value very much the opinion, the good opinion of respectable, pious people. And uh, you know, these are people who are worth being your friends. And, you know, that means that the people who don't fit into that category, well, their opinion just doesn't matter as much to you. And uh, I'm not saying it's beneath contempt. Uh, there can often be wisdom in what your enemies uh, point out about what you have said or done. But nevertheless, I mean, uh, we should value the opinions whose pin opinions are valuable. And, uh, and that's just, I think, an attitude, a very healthy attitude uh, to take you through life. And uh, it's difficult to be like that in a democracy, but um, I think that it's a very healthy attitude to try to cultivate. This might be a, a moment for me to insert something here. The reason, the reason I'm asking Dr. Gainer these, these questions is because all of us face this to some degree. You post something on Facebook and all of a sudden somebody attacks you for standing for life in the womb or Roe v. Wade or defending marriage or or not supporting homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever the issue. And if somebody says something negative, oh no, I'm gonna go off Facebook. No, we, we stay on Facebook or we stay where we are and we push back. We don't have to tolerate that. Uh, I, my theory is that the reason God made the blocking capability of Facebook is so we can use it when we need to. <laughs> Facebook is my living room. I don't need to have somebody on there who's gonna harass me. I don't take them off initially, but they're gonna just keep harassing and harassing. Boop, you're gone, and, and that handles it. That's that's the that's the end of that. Do not back away because somebody uh, comes at you. And by the way, there are organized groups where one person may have a bunch of accounts, and all of a sudden, ten things start slamming you all at once. Did you ever have that happen? Oh or, yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, I can't I can't prove that kind of stuff, but the 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 organized nature of the social or cultural cancellation, the number of emails and. Uh, um, phone calls that I got was truly remarkable. I have a couple of the phone calls up on my Twitter account. Um, and, you know, they're truly unhinged human beings, uh, truly unhinged. And uh, they don't all sound like the same person. So I don't know that it was the same person with 10 accounts. But I do think that it was very organized. Uh, even scripts were probably handed out of some sort. People knew what lines they couldn't cross legally. And, uh, you know, I mean, when people threaten your life, I mean, it's a little disconcerting, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I have, a, I have a feeling that most of it was AstroTurf and, uh, and uh, thought of it like that. I, I remember, I think, I believe it was Glenn Beck who had a team do research on those that were attacking. It might've been wrestling ball, but I think it was Glenn Beck. And he discovered that one person had 4,400 accounts. Ah. And so it, it sounds like a whole army. It, it was one person. Well, we're going to run this plane with this. How did, how did this end? How, tell me how this ended. We haven't got to the end of what took place. Uh, were you vindicated? Or yeah, well, I, I had a hearing uh, with the Title IX investigator. Usually these hearings last, you know, nine, 10 hours. Mine lasted an hour. 
um, I had all of my evidence kind of lined up. Uh, at the end of the hour, again, this is something that doesn't happen. The interviewer said that I would be exonerated as much as I could be exonerated, um, that she thought the charges were pretty trumped up. And, uh, and you know, my, my lawyer was, you know, extremely happy about that and surprised that an investigator would say that at the end. Um, uh, uh, maybe six weeks later, the final report comes out. It's not like this exoneration. It's kind of pitiful what happens. Um, you, get, uh, you get a notice that there is insufficient evidence to proceed with a trial. And, uh, and that's vindication under our civil rights regime. There's no not guilty. There's no, um, there's no vindication or exoneration. It's insufficient evidence to go forward as if, if we looked under the table here or had a little better uh, investigate, more investigatory powers, we might be able to find sufficient evidence. But dadgummit, we ain't got it yet. And, uh, but nevertheless, that stands for vindication in our regime these days, and I'll take what I can get. What question should I have asked you that I have not asked yet? Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, the, the, legal, the legal cancellation is one thing, and that's what we've mostly focused on. Um, the deeper and more difficult thing to gauge is what, what I'm calling the social or cultural um, cancellation. And, uh, and so asking about the long-term effects of the social or cultural uh, cancellation, I think is, uh, is something that aside from the legal part is, uh, you know, must be discussed when anyone is, uh, anyone is asking questions about cancellations. And so, uh, and now you want me to answer it? Yes, by all means. The, uh, the way I would answer it is that, uh, that you don't know and you should proceed as if everyone uh, kind of knows what uh, has happened. And those who have not uh, been forward in coming to your support, that is the lukewarm, uh, that they should be spit out and uh, in, the, in the spirit of the savior, right? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think you can learn who your friends are and you can learn who your explicit enemies are, uh, but all of those who you know, like kind of refuse to acknowledge what is going on, um, you know, I think you have to assume that uh, they are at best lukewarm supporters, and uh, and you probably have to do some investigation as to which side they're on. So, you are a social scientist. You study long-term impact of policies and such. And I heard you lecture on this. You were profound a few days ago, do you see any trajectory whereby our nation will get set free from this bondage of, of cancel culture? Well, I think uh, cancel the cancellation stuff is kind of sewn into our current approach to the to civil rights. Um, and so it's, it's not something that's kind of like an accidental add-on. It's, it's sewn into the nature of it. And uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, like the Soviet Union, which had a cancel culture, um, you know, it can't survive, it could not survive the demise of its cancel culture. So I think that only when there's a kind of fundamental political reorientation can cancel culture end. Uh, and, and precisely what could trigger such a thing 
um, it's difficult for me to you know understand uh, and predict, but it's not going to be like a, a small reform that's going to put an end to it. It's going to be a big turning uh, of the entire political orientation of the country and age. I, I think the language you're using, if I were to say the same thing, it's going to take a spiritual awakening of magnitude to change people's hearts toward, and, and cause them to hunger once again for truth and righteousness and holiness. And as long as we don't have that, that's not going to happen. Uh, I, I accept your terms, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have the privilege of praying over you. You're, you're an inspiration. I uh, really, I like your style. I like your sense of humor. I like your communication pattern. You're an intriguing, you're an intriguing guy. And you're the kind of guy that uh, if I live closer, I would love to hang out with more. Not that you have the time to do it, but uh, we wouldn't meet at Starbucks for coffee because I don't drink coffee. <laughs> I, I would love to pick your brain on a lot of things I've heard you lecture on. Father, I thank you for Scott. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his commitment to you. Thank you for his commitment to the things of truth and honor and, and authentic biblical values, eternal values, transcendent values. Thank you for his marriage, his wife, who was strong through this, his children. I, I, I can't fathom how it felt to sit in the classroom hearing other professors tear down your dad. That, that's, that's painful. So I pray a, a unique protection on that family ongoing. They've made it through what we presume is obviously the worst part, but that lingering, that, that, that lingering aftershock, Lord, I just pray supernatural protection around them in every way. And I pray for a, a much more public and visible vindication. Now, Father, I even pray for an open someday apology to this man for what he and others like him have been put through so so unfairly, such injustice. He, he's not grimacing under this, Lord. He's going forward. But at the same time, I, I would like to see within the framework of this life, before we move into eternity, the, the righting of, of these wrongs. In the meantime, Lord, bless Scott. Bless Dr. Yenner. Bless his family. Bless his academic pursuit. Bless his publishing, his research, his writing, his lecturing. May his speaking engagements even be increased. May his influence be increased. May the tent pegs be moved further out of his influence across this nation. May his story be told more places. And the results of his research, which are equally exciting, may it be known by wider circles, we pray. I pray a blessing upon him, avalanches of blessing upon him, and supernatural protection to be around him in every arena of his life physical, mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, relational, financial, every arena of his life, the protection of Almighty God to be around him. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. A joy to be with you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.